morning, I want to begin with a little exercise or a test. So if you find a pen around you, if you could write this on your bulletin, or you could also type it on your phone. I, I, I won't know whether or not you're texting. That would be interesting on you. Uh, but I would love for every person in this room to do this exercise. And this, by the way, is not a group project. Much as group projects are cool, this is a solo project. I care about how you answer this, not the person next to you. Write down the phrase, God accepts me because blank. God accepts me because blank. I'll give you a moment to. Verse 1 says to be ready for every good work. 
Verse 5 says, God saved us, not because of our own good works. So we are accepted by grace, not our works. And that allows us to live acceptably in good works. Good works do not come before our salvation. They come after. That's really the main point of this passage. It's a very gospel passage. So Paul helps Titus. He's wanting to help him build healthy, gospel-centered churches on the island of Crete. And here, if we're going to sum up chapter 3, 1 to 7, we can sum it up like this. Live well in the world out of humility about who you are. Out of a gratitude for God's grace and out of confidence in God's salvation. Live well in the world out of humility about yourself, gratitude for God's grace, and confidence in God's salvation. We'll spend our time mainly breaking down that main points. So first, live well in the world. We're focusing on verses 1 and 2. Now there are a lot of questions that Christians have to answer as they live in the world. Questions like, should I send my kids to homeschool, private school, or public school? Questions like, what political candidate should I vote for? Questions like, should I have a Netflix account or not? Now, I bet you would love for me to answer those questions for you this morning and just tell you what to do, but that's not what the scope of the sermon is. So, but questions like these prove Christians can think differently about how we interact with the world. As even there are matters over which thoughtful Christians can charitably disagree. But here in Titus 3, Paul offers some clarity. Paul tells Titus how the Christians in Crete can live well among the world around them. And we might find that Paul's instructions here emphasize values that we have forgotten. It's fitting then that Paul begins verse 1 with a simple two words, remind them. This instruction to Pastor Titus is just a small instance of the already not yet dynamic in the church age. Right? So that we have already been set free from our sin, but we are not yet done battling the remaining effects of our sin. So that means we are forgetful and need reminding. We grow overly familiar and need reminding. We even become falsely confident. So Titus needs to remind the Christians and Creeds to live well in the world. Now, what's that going to look like? Well, I think in verses 1 and 2, Paul lays out three categories of good living. Categories of posture, speech, and behavior. So their posture. Paul instructs them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Just explain this a little bit. Now, submission and obedience to rulers and authorities this is not a blind submission or a blind obedience. If you know your Bibles, you know that there are many examples in the Bible of the limits of submitting and obeying to human rulers and authorities. So in Exodus, the Hebrew midwives did not submit to the order to kill Hebrew babies. In Acts chapter 5, John and Peter refused to submit to the command, don't preach the gospel. Even the guy who's writing this, Paul, will one day be martyred, presumably because he refused to submit to the commands, similarly, not to preach the gospel. Submission to human authority has its limits because we submit first and ultimately to God's authority. 
But for as much as we might not like them at times, for as much evil and corruption as they are capable of, our general posture should be submission and obedience to human authorities. And by the way, I think it's worth noting that the people in Crete and throughout the Roman Empire would have to deal with just as much, probably more, evil and corruption than we have to deal with today. In fact, if you want an interesting time this afternoon, go ahead and Google Emperor Nero and see what that guy did. We have this posture of submission and obedience. That's because Romans 13, 1 says, All who have authority have it because of God's sovereign will. We trust that God is ultimately on the throne above any other human ruler. Romans 13 goes on to say that God intends to use rulers and authorities to restrain evil and promote good. Now, we read earlier, I think one of the most thorough examples from the Bible that captures this posture is Daniel. We read from Daniel chapter 1. It, you might know the story that the Babylonian king takes Israel exile, and as he does so, he takes Israel's best and brightest and for his own court. He puts them in some training regiment so that they're prepared to serve in this court. But part of the training regiment is assimilation to Babylonian culture and even religion. So we read Daniel and his friends, they all get new names. Names that no longer reflect, <coughs> reflect Yahweh, the one true God, names that reflect the Babylonian gods. Daniel and his friends, they get a new diet. No longer are they eating in conformity to the Old Testament law. No, now they're eating in conformity with the Babylonians. Here they are in an ungodly situation. Yet Daniel asks permission of the king's eunuch to live differently. It seems like the king's eunuch says, okay. Probably because Daniel won his respect. And so in this ungodly situation, Daniel maintains respectful submission as well as his godly identity. That's a good example for us today. Now see, why is it so important for the Christians in Crete to be submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities? Well, I think there are some clues from the letter so far. Have you noticed so far Paul's emphasis on being self-controlled? It's come up time and time again. We've been like Oprah with this. Well, Oprah used to give everybody a car. It's like Paul with self-control. Like elders, you be self-controlled. Older men, you be self-controlled. Older women, you be self-controlled. Younger men, you be self-controlled. Everybody, be self-controlled. Now maybe, just maybe, Christians in Crete struggle to control themselves. Now that type of posture does not lend itself well to submitting and obeying authorities. Now if they kept that posture, the Christians in Crete would damage the church's reputation. And further, they would make it unnecessarily harder to spread the gospel. One commentator says this, the Romans hated nothing worse than cults that they deemed seditious. So Paul advocates for a thoughtful, respectful, and biblically informed submission and obedience. Even just thinking about this for us, I think this is a good word for our current cultural moment, where it's just become acceptable to display a vulgar defiance and disrespect Toward authorities. If you want to know what I mean, take a look at some flags that wave around town. Alan 
Don't hear me saying that the Bible doesn't hold authorities accountable. This is the same Bible that has John the Baptist, whose words to Herod, Herod are critical. But there is a type of vulgar defiance and disrespect that's out of line with Titus 3, 1-2. But their interaction with outsiders extends beyond their interaction with rulers and authorities. Uh, that's why Paul also tells them to be ready for every good work. Notice again, this is a, as much of an action as much as it is a posture. He says, be ready. If you want to know what this readiness looks like, well, look no further than Jesus himself. Jesus was constantly ready for good works. Think of Mark chapter 5, for instance. There's a guy named Jairus who comes to ask Jesus, Jesus, would you heal my daughter? And Jesus goes with him. On the way there, another person needs Jesus' help. Bleeding woman who's had a hemorrhage for 12 years and he heals her. It tells us that Jesus is so ready for good works that even while he's doing good works, he's ready for more good works. Paul assumes the people in Crete will have unique opportunity for good works, so he tells them, be ready. What are, what are the opportunities that, come, that have come your way this week? Opportunities to bless, to help. It's a reminder, don't be too busy and too preoccupied to be interrupted in order to help somebody else. Well, to live love among outsiders, Paul addresses their posture. He also addresses their speech. Verse 2, he says, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling. Remember Jesus' words from Matthew 12, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if the gospel has transformed our hearts, means the gospel should, should then transform our speech, how we talk. In fact, Jesus goes on in that same passage to say that God will hold us accountable for every careless word that we say. Boy, that's sobering, isn't it? The book of James says that we can use our mouths both to bless and to curse. Looking back here at Titus, we curse others when we are unfairly critical, unfairly combative, and unfairly contentious. Paul wants the Christians of Crete to live well in the world, so he addresses their posture, their speech, and their behavior. To we'll close out verse 2, he upholds the positive virtues of gentleness and courteousness. Now, in fairness, we can display both of these in our speech and our conduct, but just to explain that gentleness here is not an absence of strength, it's not an absence of courage, it's not an absence of resolve. It's exercising those qualities with wisdom, love, and humility. In fact, the standard Biblical Greek dictionary defines the word gentle as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. So Paul calls the Christians in Crete, I don't know if you noticed this, he says, display gentleness and courteousness, not just to the people that you like. Again, Jesus says, Matthew 5, 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? No, the Cretans are to be gentle and courteous toward all people. So whether it's the Christians in Crete or the Christians here in Parma, Northeast Ohio, we should live well among outsiders. Our posture, our speech, our behavior. Because when we do that, we stand in contrast to the world around us. Remember how Paul describes the false teachers in Crete. Chapter 1, verse 10. False teachers, he says, are insubordinate. Chapter 1, verse 11, 
false teachers, they upset and disturb people. Chapter 1, verse 16, the false teachers are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. It's like Paul tells them, live completely opposite to these guys. We want to live well among outsiders also because when we do that, we discredit the common criticisms and charges against Christians. When you look at chapter 2, verse 8, it indicates that the Christians of Crete have opponents. And those opponents say evil things about them. Look, getting help from 1 Peter 2.15, it says that it's the will of God for us to do good so that we may put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's in the Bible. We want to live well among outsiders, so we stand in contrast to the world, so that we discredit the common charges against us. But maybe most importantly, we want to do this so that we reflect Christ's character. Remember that Jesus rendered under Caesar what was Caesar's, and that God was God's. Remember that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Remember that it was of Jesus that it was said that no one ever spoke like this man. You alone have the words of life. You remember Jesus describing his own heart as gentle and lowly. We want to live well in the world. How do we do all of this? Well, Augustine wrote that the first way to truth is humility. The second way to truth is humility. The third way to truth is Wikipedia. Kidding, it's humility. Just seeing if you're aware. We can say the same about living well in this world. We won't have a heart for the world around us if we are constantly proud about how much better we are than the world around us. We won't be gracious unless we remember that we ourselves desperately need grace. So we continue to fill out our main point. Live well in the world out of humility about yourself. Look with me again at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So Paul has just advocated for this virtuous thinking and behaving. But here he points out that we once had corrupted thinking and behaving. Our thinking was foolish. The Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's not just your opinion, it's also how you function and operate. We function and operate on our own, like there is no God. Like it's just me, and I can do what I want. Our behaving is corrupted. It's, he calls it disobedient. This disobedience is ultimately against God himself. Any wrong that we do communicates to God, I reject your way for my own way. Foolish disobedience. Looking at verse 3, one pastor observes how we are both responsible and victims for our corrupted thinking and behavior. Notice that it says we are foolish, but we are also led astray. We are disobedient, and we are also enslaved. We have malice, envy, and hatred, yet we're also on the receiving end of those, as we are hated ourselves. It's a good reminder that the Bible has categories for both sin and being sinned against. But the latter does not justify the former. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted 
when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, not somebody else's. So this is how we live. Guilty, corrupted, trapped, broken, hurt. If you look at verse 3, I wonder if you have maybe a hard time interacting with it. Especially if you don't identify as a Christian. Maybe you say that, I don't really see the evidence for verse 3 in, in myself or in the people around me. Now, there are lots of things we could say, but one of them is, it's really easy to fall for appearances. In a culture that values self-esteem, we must actively cover up any evidence that we aren't wonderful people. In a culture where everybody else is the problem, not me and my group, this verse sounds foreign to us. But if, this, if you have a hard time interacting with verse 3, I want you to think about the experience of the guy who wrote this. We read his story earlier in Philippians 3. Paul had crafted a, his life so perfectly that he would appear flawlessly to the people around him. Belonging to all the right groups, achieved all the impressive acts, he says it was all fake. Underneath the veneer was self-righteousness and even hatred. So my friend, if you have a hard time with verse 3, I would ask you, what really lies beneath the surface you display to others? Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But remember, Paul didn't write verse 3, first to non-Christians. He wrote it for Christians. This is another truth that Titus needs to remind people of. This reminder is similar to God's reminder to his people after the Exodus. He freed them even when they were a nation. He loved them. And he tells them that your past should keep you humble when you meet people like me. So for instance, Leviticus 19, 33-34 says, God says to them, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Why? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, you might imagine that the Israelites could be forgetful about who they used to be, what God saved them out of. You can imagine how they might respond to strangers among them if they were forgetful of that. They can see strangers dwelling among them. They say, these people are a bunch of lazy freeloaders. I mean, who are they to, to take stuff that we've well earned ourselves? They need to take responsibility for themselves, pull themselves together. You know, we got to the promised land by our own blood, sweat, and tears, not with any stinking handouts. Be forgetful. It's so easy to forget our former state. If the Israelites did that, they would end up elevating themselves above people whose current state is just their own former state. It's so easy for us to do the same. I want to confess and be honest, I've, I've done this myself, even, even of late. Experience this kind of forgetfulness and elevation. I, I don't know if you've noticed, it's really hard not to notice, but it's, uh, it's currently Pride Month. Um, so it's just kind of the celebration of lifestyles that we would say are contrary to the will of God as revealed in Scripture. 
that celebration is in front of us everywhere. And I'll be honest with you, it's pretty fun. And I am I'm quick to criticize the holes and what I see as inconsistencies in the narratives that unfold uh, this, this month and this movement. But there might be a time and place for that. But if I'm not careful, I can ironically be sinfully prideful myself. I can join the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 and say, thank God I'm not like the other people. And Titus 3.3 reminds me, apart from the grace of God, I am no better than anybody else. We want to live well in the world. We can't do that unless we humbly admit on our own, I'm no better than the world. So maybe you resonate with verse 3 and feel it deeply. Maybe you say, there's no truth there's no denying the truth about who I am on my own. My friend, if the harsh reality of verse 3 humbles you, well then, you're the exact type of person that verses 4 to 6 unfold. But when the goodness, loving kindness of our God, our God our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We live out well in the world out of humility about, our, about who we really are. Also, we live well in the world out of gratitude to God about ourselves. I can spot three levels of gratitude in verses 4 to 6. We are grateful to God at the first level for his goodness and loving kindness. Now, verse 4 of chapter 3 sounds a lot like verse 11. It gives us a clue that God's goodness and loving kindness are not just vague concepts. They are embodied, incarnated in Christ himself. Jesus is the goodness and loving kindness of God in tangible form. And so I think when goodness and loving kindness appear, I think this is a good reminder. We rightfully emphasize the logic of our salvation how it works. When Jesus lived the life that I didn't live, he died the death that I deserved. That is essential. But we must not emphasize the logic of our salvation and forget God's heart behind our salvation. Goodness, loving kindness. Oh, this is rest and refuge and relief for sinners who are humbled and weary from their self-inflicted wounds. Example of this, I was thinking of this, this week of watching a Vietnam War documentary. Um, there's a guy named Bill Earhart who, who shared his experience. Uh, Earhart fought in the longest battle of the Tet Offensive in the, in the Vietnam War. Uh, it was two brutal weeks in the River City of Hue. Uh, and, and during that battle, the civilians living there fled to the local university. In Earhart's words, they did this in order to escape the hand grenades being thrown into their living rooms. Now, after the battle, uh, amidst which there were many uh, great and honorable acts of valor, um, one guy comes to Earhart uh, with the other soldiers with him in his group. Uh, he tells them, there's this, there's this girl here who will sleep with all of us if we give her food rations. So Earhart says, I knew who was wrong. I thought of my mom, I thought of my sister, I, I said, I bet this 
probably your mom and sister yourself. He said, I knew it was wrong. I didn't have the courage to say no. And he says, I've been ashamed of, ashamed of it every single day ever since. What if God's goodness and loving kindness be good news to a guy like your guy? To someone who is humble and weary from their self We are grateful to God for his goodness and loving kindness. We are grateful to God at another level because he saved us. Let me look back at these verses. God didn't have the motivation of some talent scout. He wasn't moved by how much we could offer him. He wasn't impressed by our accolades or achievements. He saved us. Why? What was his motivation? Nothing about us. It was according to his own not because we were lovely, but because he is loving. We are grateful to God. The other level, the next level, that God opened our eyes and made us new. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Remember in John 3 that Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. So when Jesus died on the cross, he took the curse we deserve so that we could have the blessing he deserved. One of those blessings is the promised Holy Spirit, who God, God the Father and God the Son send in order to wake up deceived and disobedient people. Open our eyes so that we would embrace the truth about Jesus. Change our hearts so that the disobedient would now become obedient. So we take a step back and look at the whole. At every level, at every step of the journey, it was a result of God's initiative, not our own. God's grace, not our merit. God's power, not our achievement. This is essential if we are going to live well in the world. Because Jesus said, those who have been forgiven much, love much. When you know the immeasurable extent of God's grace, you cannot help but be wholeheartedly grateful. So we live well in the world out of humility about who we are, out of a gratitude to God, and lastly, out of confidence in what God's salvation now means for us. So we're coming up to verse 7. Here's how the process has worked since verse 3. We were guilty for our corruption. Out of his goodness, love, and grace, God saved us. He opened our eyes to receive Christ. He made us new. And now what are the results of that? Well, verse 7. So that now we are justified by his grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that God has saved us, we can be confident. Confident in our new status. Our new status is justified in Christ. Justification is one of those churchy words that we use a lot. You might forget what it means. It's a legal courtroom term, meaning to declare righteous. So if we're looking at our court case, what were the charges that were brought up against us? Well, verse 3 would be a very good summary of the charges against us. But out of his grace, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us, not because he forgot his justice, but because he satisfied his justice by carrying out those charges against Jesus in our place. Through Jesus, God canceled our debt. Through Jesus, God satisfied the charges. And if that weren't enough, not only did Jesus do that, 
He also gave us his clean record, his own perfect life. Here's this sweet exchange. Jesus gets what we deserve, and he gets what he deserves. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin Corinthians 5, 31. My friend, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, you stand before God, just like me, with guilty charges. Look here at Titus. No amount of good works will erase or absolve you of those charges. But God is good and sent his son to satisfy the charges that stand against you so that you can be justified. Even though you are guilty, you can be declared righteous. That is the amazing good news of the gospel, that God justifies the ungodly because Christ went in our place. We are confident in our new status as justified in Christ. Because that enables us to live well in the world. For example, it secures us against discouragement. You remember the situation here in Crete, false teachers had infiltrated the church. Paul says they have upset whole families with their endless outward man-made rules. They communicate that God justifies us only once we do enough. That leads to discouragement despair. But the good news is that God justifies us not, be, not once we have done enough, but because Christ has done enough. And this brings humble, grateful confidence. Romans 8, 33, 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Confidence in our new status. I love the old hymn, how it puts it. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? I'll go out alone and see him there. He made an end to all my sin. Now that God has saved us, we are confident in our new status, and we are confident in our new destination. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And you and I cannot be truly hopeful if we are only wishful. We are hopeful if we are confident. Confident that we are co-heirs with Jesus. I'll say it again because Jesus took the curse we deserve, we get the blessing that he deserves. That blessing includes eternal life. This is better than any earthly blessing. This is heavenly, eternal blessing. As Jesus has made us new creatures, he will bring us into new creation where there's no more worry, where there's no more loss, where there's no more injustice, where there's no more disease, where there's no more racism, where there's no more shame, where there's no more death, where there's no more gap between you and God. What is eternal life? John 17, 3 that we may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. This enables us to live well in the world. Confidence in our heavenly destination helps us to patiently endure even the worst earthly humiliation. The Christians in Crete would undoubtedly receive attack and betrayal and slander you might imagine how the people around them would respond to their suffering. 
any one of them would lose a spouse. The people around them would say, if your God is so good, why would he let this happen to you? This is what happens when you leave behind your home, your heritage, and your home religion. This type of taunting is not so foreign because it still happens in the world. As we heard from Mark Phillips on Wednesday night. In scenarios like this, we remember Titus 3, verse 7. That no matter their earthly situation, Jesus has secured for us a heavenly destination. So we can patiently endure to live for Christ in the world because we have confident hope. Brothers and sisters, let's follow Christ and live well in the world. Let's do this out of a humility about who we are, out of gratitude for God's grace, and confidence in God's salvation. A good response to Titus 3, 1 to 7 comes from John Newton. It's the second week in a row, um, quoting the former slave trader turned hymn writer. John Newton wrote this I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am. Seeing the word of the Lord's Supper. If you haven't received the elements for that, they're available in the back of the room. 